welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. In 1979, the people of Nicaragua overthrew the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Anastasio Somoza. The Somoza family dictatorship ruled Nicaragua from 1937 until 1979 when the Sandinista National Liberation Front ended the Somoza rule. The Sandinistas promised to free their country from the grip of U.S. control and prioritize the needs of poor people ahead of foreign corporations. Since then, the people of Nicaragua have faced constant attacks from Washington. The U.S. playbook, regime change, in an effort to topple the democratically elected government and impose a pro-U.S government. During the 1980s, the U.S. armed and trained counter-revolutionary forces known as the Contras in neighboring Honduras. Not only did the Contras kill supporters of the Sandinistas and carry out terrorist attacks in Nicaragua, they also helped to smuggle drugs into the United States, targeting black and brown communities starting in South Los Angeles. Although the Sandinistas went on to lose the election in 1990, they were re-elected yet again in 2006, and the United States then continued to attempt to destabilize or bring about regime change. They hope for a government more friendly to U.S. corporate interests. This time, however, instead of using brute force and armed drug gangs, they are now using crippling economic sanctions. Sanctions have devastating impacts on jobs, on healthcare, food, water, education, transportation, and more, impacting the average Nicaraguan. Today, we bring you audio from a presentation by the late Dr. Paul Oquist about the impact of sanctions on Nicaragua. Dr. Oquist was the Secretary Minister for National Policies under the Sandinista government. Although he was born and raised in the United States, Dr. Oquist was a lifelong supporter of the Sandinista revolution. He held numerous positions in the progressive government during the 1980s. Following the victory of the Sandinista revolution, as well, he served again after 2007, when the Sandinistas came back to power. In October 2020, the U.S. government actually sanctioned uh, Dr. Oquist, claiming that he was helping to quote-unquote undermine democracy. Another point about Dr. Oquist is that he was a dedicated environmentalist who refused to back the adoption of the pa Paris Climate Agreement. He argued that the deal just didn't go far enough to cut global emissions and protect exploited countries from climate devastation. Sadly, Nicaragua lost Dr. Oquist. He passed away on April 11, 2021, but he remains a hero to many in Nicaragua. Romero Funes, the assistant producer of Sojourner Truth recorded this presentation on March 15, 2021, while he was on the ground in Nicaragua during his participation in the Sanctions Kill 
and Friends of the Rural Workers Association delegation in Nicaragua. Sadly, this was Dr. Oquist's last public speech. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The chief financial officer of the Trump Organization has surrendered himself to New York authorities after an indictment on tax fraud charges. Alan Weisselberg has been a key executive in former President Trump's organization for decades. Feature Story News' Simon Marks reports. Alan Weisselberg surrendered to prosecutors at 6.20 a.m. Accompanied by his lawyer, he's now in the Lower Manhattan Criminal Court building where he's expected to be charged. The chief financial officer of the Trump business empire will be indicted on charges of tax fraud, accused of receiving fringe benefits as part of his compensation package that he allegedly failed to report to the authorities. The Trump organization is also facing charges with court appearances later today. Simon Marks reporting. Rescue crew and family members of those still missing in a Florida condo collapse are scheduled to meet with President Biden today. Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will console family members of the victims and thank rescue workers who continue the slow process of searching for possible survivors. The president's visit comes a week after a 12-story beachfront condominium building in Surfside suddenly collapsed. The death toll stands at 18, with 145 residents unaccounted for. Bill Cosby is out of prison and back at home. The actor and comedian's sexual assault conviction has been thrown out by Pennsylvania's highest court. The court ruled that he was unfairly prosecuted because a previous district attorney had promised he wouldn't be charged. The justices found that Cosby relied on that promise when he agreed to testify without invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination in a lawsuit brought against him by a former Temple University employee. Kathy McKee is one of dozens of women who have accused Cosby of having assaulted them. McKee said Cosby raped her in 1974. She told CNN that this case shows that people with celebrity and power can skirt justice. It's the money and the power that has Bill Cosby at home right now. He was able to afford to pay all of these attorneys to work all these years to free him, and he admitted to doing this act. The ruling is extremely rare. One law professor who has followed Cosby's case closely over the years says he's never heard of a high court anywhere grappling with a prosecutor's informal promise not to prosecute. Russian health authorities have launched booster vaccinations for those who'd been sick with COVID-19 or immunized more than six months ago. It's an effort that comes amid a surge in new infections and deaths blamed on the Delta variant. Feature Story News' Julia Chapman reports from Moscow. The mayor of Moscow announced the beginning of the capital's revaccination program on Thursday. He said regardless of a person's COVID-19 antibody levels, doctors recommend getting a third jab after just half a year. That decision has been made in light of the third wave, which officials say necessitates faster revaccination. But most Russians haven't even had a first dose of the country's four COVID-19 vaccines. Julia Chapman, Moscow. 
A new report in Arizona shows that as more people start using peer-to-peer payment apps like Venmo and Cash App, more complaints are coming in to local authorities about scams and other problems. Public News Service's Mark Richardson reports. According to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's complaint database, the number of gripes about P2P apps has almost doubled over the past 12 months. Ed Mirzwinski is a consumer watchdog for the Arizona Perg Education Fund. He says users who don't understand how the apps work can lose money. People should understand the money is gone instantly. When you push the button send, it is very rare that it will come back. And people don't realize, woof, it's gone. Mirzwinski says most common issues listed in the report, virtual wallets, real complaints, are problems managing, opening, or closing accounts, problems with fraud or scams, and problems with payments, including unauthorized transactions. Mark Richardson reporting. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and those were our news headlines. And now we kick off our Sojourner Truth special on the impact of sanctions on Nicaragua, featuring the late Dr. Paul Oquist. Dr. Oquist was the Secretary Minister for National Policies under the Sandinista government. Tragically, he passed away on April 11, 2021. The following presentation was delivered by him on March 15, 2021, for members of the Sanctions Kill and Friends of the Rural Workers Association delegation to Nicaragua. Sadly, this was his last public speech. Let's go to hear from him now. Welcome, all of you. Nice to see you here. Nice to see that the world is beginning to travel again and your pioneers in this effort to once again become mobile. The Zoom conferences are okay for making presentations, but they're not very good at all for interchanges, and they're worthless for negotiations. So it's important that we get back to -to face-to-face meetings, and I'm so glad to see you here. We're going to discuss first the worldwide denunciation against coercive unilateral and legal measures. And I congratulate you on your coalition, which is extremely important. And um, I think it's a cutting edge, really, of the fight against uh, imperial, colonial, and neo-colonial mentality in in the world today. So once again, I congratulate you. Coercive unilateral illegal measures applied to Nicaragua include the NICA Act, which is called the Nicaragua Investment Conditionality Act. It uh, seeks to back losses, loans, to block loans from international financial institutions to the government of Nicaragua unless it undertakes effective measures to hold free, fair, and transparent uh, elections. It was sponsored by Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. I really don't think his constituents in Midland, Texas, care very much about Nicaragua, but he felt more oriented towards Miami than Odessa, I think, when he proposed uh, this NICA Act. Then there's the Majeski Act, which the Congress passed uh, in, uh, 2000, in 2012, which was uh, aimed at the Russian officials 
but it's cased in universality. It's like it makes the USA uh, vigilante uh, in the world. And um, since 2016, the bill which applies globally authorizes the U.S. government sanctions its fees with regard to its view of human rights offenders. They freeze their assets and uh, prohibit them from traveling to the United States. There's also some, uh, some decrees and one decree, I would like Claudia to come up with the number and date of the decree on Nicaragua, which was applied in several cases, including mine, which has a very interesting clause in it. And that clause says that any official of the Nicaraguan government who served from 2007 onward can be subject to these coercive measures. That is a pretty big statement. Any official who has served in the government since 2007 can be subject to coercive measures. That, that means that the U.S. government is not recognizing the Nicaraguan elections of 2006, 2011, and 2016, in which President Ortega was elected with 38% of the vote, 62% of the vote, and 72% of the vote. That means that the U.S. government denies the right of Nicaraguans to, to choose a political party and be a member of a political party, the right to serve in their government, since all of the governments since 2007 have been uh, the Sandinista governments. Actually, that clause means that the United States officially looks at Nicaragua as a protectorate, not recognizing the laws, not recognizing the elections, not recognizing the right to have a political life, not recognizing the right to serve in the, um, in the government not having the right to exercise one's basic civil and humanitarian uh, rights. Executive Order Number 13851 of 27 November 2018 called Blocking the Property of Certain Persons Who Contribute to the Situation in Nicaragua. And so uh, I will read these parts from it. All of the goods and interests in the United States of America that in, uh, in, uh, subsequently will be called United States or that might subsequently enter into the position or control of any person in the United States of designated persons cannot be transferred, paid, exported, withdrawn, or dealt with in any manner. The entry of such persons in the United States as immigrants or no immigrants is suspended, except when the Secretary of State determines that the entrance of the person is in the national interest of the United States. 
The realization of donations of any type specified under Section 203B2 of IEEPA 50 United States Code 1702B2 uh, in the benefit of any person whose property or interest in uh, our block would gravely damage the capacity to um, become, to confront the national emergency cleared in this order. Nicaragua represents a danger to the United States and declares a national emergency because of the existence of, of Nicaragua. The prohibitions of this order include the realization of any contribution, provision of funds, goods, or services for and the benefit of any person whose goods or interests and property are blocked in conformity with this order. The reception of any contribution, provision of funds, goods, or services of any of these persons. Any transaction that evades or tries to avoid this proposition is a violation or intent of a violation of these provisions is hereby prohibited. Any conspiracy formed to violate any of these provisions established under this law is also prohibited. Here we have another gem, which is Executive Order 13618 of 20 December 2017. Blockage of property of persons involved in grave abuses of human rights or corruption. So, this is what we're discussing. And these measures are totally and absolutely illegal. The only sanctions that are legal in international law are those approved by the United Nations Security Council. The United States. European Union, Great Britain, Canada, and somehow most recently Switzerland, rather, have uh, engaged in this illegal activity. So the imposition of unilateral coercive sanctions against institutions, countries, and individuals are completely illegal in international law. They reflect the colonial or neo-colonial superiority complex, the same impulse that drove imperialism, colonialism, neo-colonialism, by self-appointing themselves as world policemen, world watchmen, exercising simultaneously the functions of police, prosecutor, judge, jury, jailer, and with the aggravating factor of extraterritoriality. Not only within the United States, it's projected to be effective with extraterritoriality throughout the world, outside the framework of international law. These are the remnants in the 21st century of the mentality that the imperialists, colonialists, and neocolonialists had, who felt morally superior to the South, to the blacks and the browns, and sought to tutor them, control them, and impose their will on them. Of course, 
These coercive measures violate the Universal Declaration of, uh, of Human Rights that uh, verses in Article 21A, everyone has the right to take part in the government of his country directly or through freely chosen representatives. So as you can appreciate, the provision in the decree that says any official has been in the Nicaraguan government since 2007 violates Article 21A of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that everyone has the right to take part in the government of his country directly or through freely chosen representatives. Also, and we must invoke Article 2, Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinions, national or social origin, property, birth, or any other status. Furthermore, no distinction should be, shall be made on the basis of the political, jurisdictional, an international status of the country or jurisdictions or international status of the country or territory to which a person belongs, whether it is independent, trust, non-self-governing, or any other, other limitation of, uh, of sovereignty. So it's a clear, they're illegal, they're not contemplating international law. Who appointed the United States, Great Britain, the European Union and Canada to be the world's policemen? Who appointed them to uh, judge others in terms of human rights? In Geneva, there's the United Nations Human Rights Council, right? There are meetings of the human rights group in, in Geneva, which is a proper way to address those, uh, those issues. The way these measures are are applied, violate all human and civil rights also. It's quite ironic they apply a measure saying it's to protect human rights when the measure in and of itself violates all human and civil rights. Why? There's no charges, no presumption of innocence, no right to defense, and even if you could uh, get a lawyer, you couldn't pay him because you're a designated person. And the lawyers are wary, too, because of that phrase that says anyone who has a conspiracy to obviate this can also be punished. Uh, I've experienced that. Uh, no right to due process, no right to a trial. And we go further in terms of the application of the measures. No right to own legally derived property legally gotten property is frozen, or to engage in economic transactions. There's only what exists are administrative measures without judicial recourse. That is a huge violation of the civil rights of all. Administrative measures, in this case of the U.S. Treasury, without any judicial recourse. It's uh, the worst nightmare of Franz Kafka. It's uh, a Kafkian nightmare 
It's the worst nightmare of 1984. It's Orwellian that the state prohibits the civil existence of people. So they become uh, economic zombies. They become uh, without any economic rights. The political constitution of Nicaragua states that the independence, and this is Article 1, hard fought and won through decades and centuries of struggle, independence, sovereignty, and national self-determination are an inalienable rights of the people and the basis of the Nicaraguan nation. Any foreign interference in the internal affairs of Nicaragua or any attempt to undermine these rights threaten the lives of the people. It is the duty of all Nicaraguans to preserve and defend these rights. The right to sovereignty, independence, and self-determination. And these measures are obviously a massive intervention, interference in Nicaraguan internal affairs and politics and government. Chapter one, verses on individual rights. To individual liberty, to their security, to the recognition of their personality and legal capacity, to their private life and that of their family, to respect for their honor and reputation. Citizens have the right to elect and be elected in periodic elections and to run for public office, except for the limitations contemplated in the Constitution. So once again, the decree is violating international law, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and Nicaraguan law. As an aggravating factor, the United States claims extraterritoriality for its laws and administrative measures, but it rejects the application of international law internally in the United States. There you see the definition of a, of a power that thinks itself imperial. Its laws are mandated throughout the world, but international law is not applicable to the United States. It also applies coercive measures to third parties. Now this is another further step in terms of the intensity of these violations. So a third party who does not recognize or abide by a unilateral, coercive, illegal U.S. measure is also criminalized and can be penalized by the United States utilizing its illegal extraterritorial measures. We have the uh, example recently of the arrest in Vancouver, Canada of the financial officer of Huawei and daughter of the founder of the Chinese telecommunications firm Huawei. By a warrant of the United States that Canada honored, accused of violating U.S. sanctions against Iran. That's the accusation. So here is a third party from China who is accused of not abiding by U.S. extraterritorial sanctions and arrested and awaiting extradition. A judicial process is underway. Financial blockades to influence trade policy, black, blackmailing 
extortion with regard to political behavior, or even for much larger purposes, such as destabilization of governments, regime change, coup d'etats. Actually, we need to raise consciousness that U.S. interventionism in Latin America was not left behind with Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and the gunboat diplomacy and the dollar diplomacy of that period. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return, we will continue our special on the impact of sanctions on Nicaragua featuring Dr. Paul Oakrest. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sojourner True. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can look for us and like us there. Uh, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Central America and internationally and in the United States. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the desert communities of California. Before we continue with our program, let us turn to our weekly Earth Minute presented by Teresa Church of the Global Justice Ecology Project. Indigenous peoples and climate activists are coming together to rally at the White House to end the era of fossil fuels. This day of action is a call for President Biden to protect people instead of polluters, by ending fossil fuel projects and declaring a climate emergency. It is also a call to pass a climate justice infrastructure bill. According to the Indigenous Environmental Network, from Line 3 to the Arctic to Mountain Valley Pipeline and beyond, President Biden must prioritize climate, Indigenous rights, racial justice, housing justice, and transit justice in the infrastructure discussions. To get involved and endorse the June 30th Day of Action, visit www.j30.earth. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. Now we return to our special on the impact of sanctions on Nicaragua featuring the late Dr. Paul 
Ochris. It was a speech that he gave um, a little less than a month, actually, before he passed away. Dr. Ochris was the secretary minister for national policies under the Sandinista government. Sadly, he passed away on April 11th, 2021. And the following presentation he gave was delivered on March 15th. 2021 for members of the Sanctions Kill and Friends of the Rural Workers Association delegation to Nicaragua. This was Dr. Oquist's last public speech, and it was recorded on the ground by Romero Funes, assistant producer of Sojourner Truth. And we want to give a special shout out and thank you to Romero for his work. Let us hear now from Dr. Oquist. There have been eight coup d'etats and attempted coup d'etats in Latin America in this this century. There was Venezuela in 2002, in which Comandante Hugo Chavez was captured and taken to an island. And it took the reaction of Nicaraguan people, a segment of the army, and a strong international reaction to revert that very serious coup attempt. And the person who was uh, directing the two from the Miraflores Palace in Caracas was continually communicating with the Under Secretary of State for, for American Affairs. In 2004, Jean Bertrand Aristide was taken out of the President's office by U.S. military and thrown out of the country. A direct military intervention to create a coup d'etat as well as the CIA invasion from the Dominican Republic to bring in some reinforcements. In 2009, there was the coup against Mel Zelaya, the 28th of June of 2009. And uh, it was actually two coups, a Thursday coup that was organized by the United States and a Saturday night coup after the other one had failed, organized by the uh, right wing, the really fascist white, right wing in, uh, in, in Honduras. So that um, was denied by the United States, uh, but Hillary Clinton is a glutton for taking credit for things. So in her biography, she makes it very clear that she had met with the chair of the parliament, who was subsequently named the acting president, and enthusiastically backed the uh, coup attempt in her role as Secretary of State of the United States. Then in 2010, Rafael Correa was going to the police to talk to them about a police law. He was taken prisoner, taken to the police hospital, and uh, then uh, Secretary of uh, Foreign Relations, Patino, organized the street in Quito, and the army units came in and chatted out with the police to free President Correa from that coup attempt. In 2012, we have a coup in Paraguay against President Lugo, and this was steeped in the new modus operandi of the institutional coup which also took place with regard to uh, the first coup attempt, the U.S. coup attempt on on Thursday. You had the uh, 
the parliament, the head of the parliament, the attorney general, the Supreme Court justices, had all turned against the executive and were trying to remove the president. This happened with, uh, with Lugo. There was an incident on a farm. The police shot some, uh, some campesinos. They blamed the president and a staged operation that led to this institutional relief, uh, institutional coup. Idem in 2016 in Brazil, where Dilma in her second term was removed by the Congress for having moved money from one budget allocation to another. I've been in public administration for, for 40 years. I don't know any government that doesn't do that, to move the funds around according to the necessities. But they use that pretext to overthrow Dilma and then criminalize the Workers' Party and uh, go after Lula to try to eliminate him from the presidential election, which they did last time, saving the way for Bolsonaro and an openly fascist government that is stealing Indian lands, uh, turning a blind eye to massacres of Indians in the Amazon, turning a blind eye to the mining and forestry interests, undertaking a great depredation, even turning a blind eye to COVID-19, emulating his, uh, his model, who you are all familiar with, and then we have the coup d'etat in Nicaragua in 2018. They'd been trying to come up with something for quite a while. There had been uh, people trained in uh, some U.S. finance institutes and academies in social communication, young communicators, and the uh, the Einstein Institute George Sharp Colored Revolution Methodology. And that was applied. They tried to get it started with uh, the canal, very strangely because it was in an area the canal wasn't going to go through, but they made some uh, campesinos fearful that they were gonna get a bad deal if their lands were taken for the canal, which they weren't even gonna be taken, the canal wasn't going that way. Anyway, that turned out to be localized and short-lived. Then there was a price of the beans. They tried to mobilize on the basis of that. That didn't work. And then there was a forest fire in the Indio Maiz Reserve. And the Costa Ricans showed up at the border with some fire trucks. And the Caracas said, no, thank you. Mainly because there's no way to get in in fire trucks to where that fire was. And it was finally put out with the help of some neighboring countries that sent the, uh, the uh, boron-bearing airplanes and water-sucking airplanes and helicopters to douse the blaze in the profundity of a very virgin forest reserve. But they did some, did some demonstrations on that, and that didn't work out. And then, on, uh, in April, 2018, there was a, a law passed that uh, was going to change the Social Security law. Before that, something had happened, and this is important to understand uh, that coup. The NECA Act was introduced by Ted Cruz, 
Once again, I'm sure that people in Houston and Dallas were clamoring for the NICA Act. But he was pleased, he was with uh, Ross Tenen, with Marco Rubio, with uh, the senator from uh, New Jersey, Mendez. They were all looking for how to do damage to Nicaragua. They would have preferred to do damage to Cuba, but that wasn't in the cards. They were already doing damage to Venezuela, so Nicaragua was a good candidate to, uh, to harass. And so this NICA Act was brought up, and that had a deleterious effect on Nicaraguan politics because um, Nicaragua had had a tripartite scheme for economic legislation. This is the International Labor Organization scheme. In the ILO conferences in Geneva, you have the government, you have the unions, and you have the owners. The three show up, and they negotiate the ILO uh, resolutions. And Nicaragua was one of the few countries in the world, I don't know if there's another really, that implemented that. And the government was meeting with the unions and with COSEP, the umbrella organization of the private sector, to uh, negotiate the economic laws, to even negotiate between the three of them the, um, the minimum wage year after year. So it was all done by consensus, which has led to great social stability and labor peace. You don't hear about strikes in Nicaragua because it's all negotiated with the participation of the, um, of the unions and the owners and the, and the government. But when the NICA Act was introduced, I'm sure you all know baseball, a part of the right wing said, oh, oh the U.S. is changing the signal. It's to uh, hit and run. So they pulled out. And in, in 2018, they didn't approve the minimum wage. They didn't approve. They were withdrawing from collaboration with the government because the U.S. was changing policy, which it was. And then uh, the negotiation for this Social Security reform comes up, and they don't come through with it. They don't come through with it. Uh, the law itself was benign, was mispresented, and it was not adequately explained before it was issued. That's a self-criticism. So that uh, misinformation, fake news could uh, take hold. What it was going to do was, and this uh, the Coseps didn't like, raise the uh, employer's share of the Social Security payment, the payroll deduction, from I think it was 19 to 21 percent. It was two percentage points. They didn't like that. And it was going to put a, a 5 percent uh, uh, capture on the pensions, which would give the pensioners the same right as those secured for health benefits. So they would have the same health benefits as the uh, insured people in the, in the Social Security scheme. But that was misrepresented, saying that they were going to uh, take money away from the poor pensioners who received so little funding. Anyway, the street was heated up through fake news. Day two, there was an absolutely fake account 
that a student had been killed in the Central American University, UCA. That was absolutely fake news, invented. The fourth day, the measure on the Social Security is withdrawn. But the, you can see clearly that it's a pretext because the movement rapidly expands to cities throughout the, to cities throughout the country. And then begin the different stages of, the, uh, of this process. Very much according to Gene Sharp's manual of the Einstein Institute. How many of you have seen that, The Colored Revolution? Several of you have. And so it was according to that. They tried to uh, create victims, create the government as oppressor, uh, take public buildings. In this case, they were burned. The city hall in Granada was burned. The student center in Leon was burned. The artisan house in Granada was, in Masaya was burned. Other municipal installations in Masaya were burned. Government vehicles were burned. Uh, government equipment, construction equipment was destroyed. And then there was a looting phase. And the looting phase to me is very, very interesting in terms of doing a study of this because people came up in motorcycles to break open the police doors. The police doors are owned by Walmart and they specialize in low-end, low-price mass distribution. It's the Nicaraguan version. There's a Walmart store too, but this is the Nicaraguan version of the, of the Walmart model in the U.S. So it's reaching publics that the others don't reach by doing it with low prices. So the poor people buy their rice and beans and their cooking oil and sometimes tortilla flour from Walmart. So they would break into the, to the Walmart and uh, some of them would go out into the neighboring neighborhood to gleefully announce that there's a looting party. They're being invited to a looting party at the uh, Pavi, which is open for looting. While their cohorts are mobilizing these people, they get into the cash registers and take out the money. And then something that uh, strikes me as very interesting. They break into the ATM machines and steal the money from the ATM machines. And that takes a little bit of, of uh, technology because the ATM machines are not made to be broken into too easily. And you can torch them, but you can burn the money. But these people knew how to do it without burning the money, to open up the ATM machines and get the money out. And uh, then when the people come in and start to, uh, to loot, they move on to another pali or another store to apply the same uh, modus operandi. But the, the targeting of the pali, I think is very interesting because it was an attempt to to damage the supply of food for the, uh, for the most popular elements, the most marginal elements, the most vulnerable elements in Nicaragua society who have low income, low savings, low capacity to deal with, uh, with a shutdown like that. Then there begins terrorism campaigns of neighborhood invasions and house invasions, 
in uh, targeting of Sandinistas and real atrocities. A Sandinista companion is um, captured near the Opoli University and he is, they're filming this because the, the terrorists filmed, they're very much into the digital age, they filmed their crimes. And so he's laying there in the street and they're going, and they start to burn his body. You don't know if he's alive or dead, but they, uh, they, they, they torch his body and they filmed that. There's other instances of that too. And they were capturing municipal officers and in, uh, in the shadow of Abu Ghraib prison in, um, in uh, Iraq, they were stripped naked and this is to break down their will, to make them feel horrible, to break down their, their self-esteem. So they would torture them without clothes, tied up when they captured uh, Sandinistas. And then there was the threats by, for example, in a neighborhood, you wake up in the morning and all of the Sandinista houses have a mark on it, like the Nazis putting the Star of David on the Jewish houses in the build up to the Nazi control. So they applied that type of uh, terror too. But the most significant thing was to set up blockades, tranques. Some in the cities, but they started to blockade all of the highways to Managua. And this was very clearly to stop the food supply from coming into the, the capital. And so this interrupted commerce, interrupted Central American commerce. A lot of these freight liners you see got trapped. And then you had the, um, these, these, these tranques were, were crime centers. They would extort money from people. They would have people pay to get through the tranque. Some of them with medical problems. Ambulances were stopped. People died because the tranques blocking off the flow of medicine, the flow of patients, as well as uh, people being captured and people being kidnapped, tortured, and then assassinated. So you'll see some things like housing development, Bismarck Martinez, who was a city worker, a Sandinista worked in the in the parks department of the municipality of Managua. They captured him on one of these tranques. They took him to Carrasso. They tortured him and they murdered him. It took a while to find his body, but they filmed it too. So you had the films of the people who, who did these horrific, uh, horrific crimes. So Bismarck Martinez is the, is the symbol of the person was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they pick him up and they torture him, and then they murder him. These tranques uh, were particularly acute in Masaya, where the police station was put under siege for over two weeks. The siege of the police station in Masaya, and it was uh, they couldn't go out. Their food supply and water supply were running out. They were surrounded and they were outgunned. And finally a column 
went into the the equipment yard of the Masaya uh, mayor's office, and then they drove through and liberated the uh, the police station. What is the headline? We'll talk about the media in a minute. What is the headline in the world immediately? Sandinista police enter Masaya to repress the population. That's the headline. The United States, Europe, with all of the the uh, resonance that the CIA and its associates can can uh, can move, and that um, is another aspect of this is the aspect of the media campaign, the social media campaign, and the managing of the message. It is Goebbels. I know that sounds extreme, but it is pure Goebbels. It's the big lie repeated a thousand times, becoming a media fact. And the Guardian quotes some source in Nicaragua. The Times of London quotes the Guardian. The Der Spiegel quotes the Times of London. And they start to create a media fact that has no basis in reality. It is the big lie. And the big lie in this case is that this was not a uh, coup attempt, but rather peaceful demonstrations against the Social Security law that the government viciously repressed. And everything else we're talking about is not there. It's not even in the human rights reports. I am a PhD in political science. I studied at the University of California, Berkeley. But I had no, I studied international law there. I had to have that course as part of the PhD in political science. And within that, there's human rights. I had no idea how biased the human rights structure is in and of itself. Because when you say, why in these reports is a, is a Rouse Pineda not there? Why is Bismarck Martinez not there? And the response would be from the people of the OAS and the people of, uh, of the private uh, human rights organizations, because the governments have the duty to protect. So it's the government's failing if these terrorists are slaughtering people. And this is a coup d'etat attempt. You see how, how bizarre that is? How surrealistic to say the government must protect the, all the citizens against the people who are trying to overthrow the government. Give me a break. And that's the way the human reports, rights reports come out. But also, they have another big failing. They quote domestic sources that are completely biased, like Vilma Nunez's uh, human rights organization, which has been anti-government from the get-go and has been trying to do damage and destabilize the government for years. But they quote them as a credible source. Pedro Joaquin Chamorro and Confidencial, Confidencial is seen as the independent Nicaraguan media. The independent Nicaraguan media says when it's one of the prime uh, outlets of U.S. finance propaganda. They're financed completely by the United States, the, his operation. Every single election in Nicaraguan politics, the U.S. has intervened in. There's not one that the U.S. has not intervened in, which makes quite funny when people get upset about, oh, the Russians might have intervened in the 2016 election when the U.S. has intervened in every single U.S. Nicaraguan uh, election. 
In 1924, 1928, and 1932, the Electoral Commission was formed by U.S. Marines and led by a U.S. Admiral. So that takes care of, the, of that period. And in 1984, 1990, 1996, 2001, 2011, and 2016, the U.S. was always managing the opposition, financing the opposition. The Frente Sandinista is up against the U.S. in every election. The big, the big adversary is the U.S. Their instruments are the local politicians who they crack their heads to try to get them into unified candidacy. And we'll try to do that again this year. The, the opposition is very divided, but you'll see heads cracking, money flowing, and all of a sudden they'll probably come up with a, a, unified, uh, a unified candidate. We're out of time. I'd like to thank everyone who made this show possible and of course uh, those who allowed us to use the speech of Dr. Oquist and bring it with you. We want to thank Sanctions Kill and Friends of the Rural Workers Association delegation to Nicaragua and a special thank you today to Romero Funes, our assistant producer who was on the ground and made this recording possible. He's also today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoTrueRadio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Y'all, please remember to stay safe.